I actually think I was born to be a CEO. I feel that the opportunity is here for me to do something, not just to achieve something for myself, but to create a company that makes work work. I'm Kelly Hoey, host of Broad Mike. I speak with the most accomplished entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders about the issues that matter in building a business. You will get the inspiration as well as the picks and shovels you need to become a better entrepreneur. Be inspired, take action, think broad. I am pleased to welcome Stephanie Newby to our studio today. Stephanie is Crimson Hexagon CEO. Crimson Hexagon helps the world's smartest brands use insights derived from social data to drive strategy across their organizations. She is responsible for the company's operational excellence, including its vision, values, and corporate strategy. And in her past life, she was on Wall Street and is the founder of New York-based investment firm Golden Seeds. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you, Kelly. So I want to give you a massive congratulations. You've completed a $20 million Series C round. That's right. Yes, (laughs) we're excited to have it in the bag, I can tell you. I want to say, you know, you've worked on Wall Street. You've, you know, founded Golden Seeds. Was this, the, however, raising a Series C, was this the biggest challenge so far? It uh, may well be, actually. I think mostly because it's creating such a turning point for the company. So, yeah, it does feel like a really, really important thing to have achieved. And um, interestingly, in spite of all of that background, how much I had to learn that I didn't know. Okay, tell me more about that. Well, so people think if you work on Wall Street, then you know all about raising capital and so on. But the reality is there are lots and lots of different types of jobs on Wall Street. And um, and I was actually more of an intrapreneur on Wall Street because I was uh, starting small businesses, turning them into big businesses. Uh, thrown a project. Do you think this is going to be a good market opportunity? Okay, let's get this going. And so very, very operational and always really focused on technology within that to create competitive advantage and not really about raising capital. So when I started Golden Seeds, I had no idea how to do that. And I really learned that through joining New York Angels and learning about angel investing and all of that which is still extremely different to raising a growth equity round. So each phase, I think it definitely equipped me to do better and more than I could have without the prior experiences. But I was really quite shocked at how much I needed to know and how much I had to draw on those experiences to raise the growth equity round. We're glad you did. So what do you think in terms of your early career experiences, or maybe it was before, you know, jobs on Wall Street and and the rest of it that really enabled you to be that risk taker and leader that you are? Well, I think risk taking is something that that you do in your whole life. It's not that you, you know, don't take a lot of risks and suddenly you say, now I'm going to start taking risks. I think it's a little bit innate. And so perhaps the fact that I, you know, here I am, in New York after a long career on Wall Street and working in a technology company and so on, having grown up in the outback is a testament to a multitude of risks taken all along that continuum. 
But I think that um, mostly, I think it took me a while to realize that I actually was born with an, an engineer's DNA. Even though I've never done engineering, it's about process. So I am always looking to improve a process or create one or become more efficient. And that's actually really valuable when you're building things. So what drives you to keep going? Like I'm just sort of thinking, you know, you've had two very successful careers so far. Why take on this challenge of being a CEO of a startup? I actually think I was born to be a CEO. And it took me a while to, for the right opportunities and the right risks to take to land here. It was definitely not planned. I, I talk about my career as the random walk theory and practice. And so I think that it's just, I feel that the opportunity is here for me to do something, not just to achieve something for myself, but to create a company that makes work work. And by that, I mean, really, I want to make a company that works for women and not just for women, because today, both men and women need the same thing, which is they need to be able to create less conflict between work and family. And that's essentially why I started Golden Seeds anyway, to make more women entrepreneurs, be successful, get funded, help them with their companies, so that that female influence could encourage a slightly different culture that would make work work. Now I can do that myself. Doing that yourself with, in terms of you, like your team and how you're building Crimson Hexagon? That's right. And, uh, well, if you look at the executive team at Crimson Hexagon today, there are three men and three women. And it wasn't terribly deliberate. Like, I haven't said, got to have a woman in this job. But I was delighted when I found a female CFO because that meant, oh, well, now the next job I fill you know, we'll still have quite a lot of balance and it really doesn't matter uh, what gender that is. Um, but I do believe in the power of diversity, not just around gender, but other things too, because I love myself to be challenged. So I don't want people around me that are like me at all. And so that's sort of how it's come about so far. We haven't done very much on actually focusing on culture yet, because with small companies, first you have to focus on survival, as uh, we all know. And secondly, then, um, you know, getting to the point where you're big enough with the critical mass to know that the path to success now is more about you getting things right than just not having all the right resources. But we are in that point now. So we've started to focus on values and I'm now talking about values and really turning them into things that drive our behavior and our measurement and recruitment and so on. And that's the fun part. Oh, yeah, that starts, well, I want to say some of the things, you know, drawing on your past experiences of, you know, picking and growing companies and growing opportunities. Now you're like, okay, let's put all of this into practice. How many employees is Crimson Hexagon now? We're 140 now. Wow. Yeah, so we got to uh, cash flow break even back in 2014. We were at about 60, and we'd held that number for quite a while. And uh, then we started to grow from our own cash, which is a great position to be in. And it gave us the opportunity to settle a few things uh, in place and test out some new systems, make sure that they were working. And by that, I mean, we put in place a new sales and marketing model. And that really enabled us to, when we went out for the growth equity round, to be confident that things were, act we weren't bringing capital in to fix problems. We were bringing capital in to put fuel on an engine that was working properly. And I think that enabled us to get 
over the line. Novel idea, money to actually do something as opposed to fix all these past problems. What motivated you to take the plunge and leap from being an investor to being the CEO of a startup? So with a lot of my uh, moves, as I've said, it's the random walk theory. So it was completely unintentional. And uh, Crimson Hexagon's board of directors was um, looking for a new CEO. And I realized that boards get a little antsy when they've got a leaderless company. So either one of them has to sit in the seat or they've got to, you know, sometimes they can make decisions too quickly. And um, this was an important portfolio company for Golden Seeds. So I offered to go up to Boston. I think I went on 24 hours notice just to sit in the seat as interim uh, until the board found a new CEO. And um, after a couple of months, I, I found a couple of things that happened. One is Golden Seeds was working perfectly well without me. Secondly, um, I was discovering at Crimson Hexagon a company with where the technology was way more exciting than I had realized. The people were just really, really high quality. Uh, the customer base was really high quality and the market momentum was moving. So um, actually, the board asked me to stay and, it, and that was the first moment where I thought, hmm, well, maybe I even might do this. And I only thought about it uh, for 24 hours and said yes. This opportunity is way too exciting. I'm not giving this to anybody else. Well, um, I also had to make the decision if I felt I could make a positive impact because I'd be shooting myself in the foot if I, uh, as an investor in the company as well as the CEO, if I didn't think I could. And uh, I really felt that I, you know, had what it took to get us to the next level. So, and that has been proved out, I suppose, at this point, which is great. I want to say that's an interesting point of self-awareness and and thinking about how many people start companies and they're the right entrepreneur to start a company, but they're the, not the right entrepreneur to grow or scale, you know, that, that, that next level. But what's your, what's your thought now that you've had that moment where you had to assess whether or not you are the right person for this company and put being an investor and having a financial stake to the side What's your, what would be your guidance to someone else who, who is assessing an opportunity and saying, all right, this is how you think about whether or not you're the right person? Well, a lot of founders that I've met actually um, typically are quite enlightened on this point. And particularly when they've started a company with um, a motive that they're really passionate about, you know, solving a particular problem. And, it, and it's less about... Uh, you know, how big can we can grow and, you know, how much money can we all make than it is about solving that problem and proving to the world something. And so those entrepreneurs typically are able to put their ego aside and do what's in the best interest of the company. And um, so I, I really feel what I, one of the things that I'm always looking for in people is their ability to do that. So check your ego at the door is on every single job description that I write. And, um, and you know, in building a team, that's also what I'm looking for. So that's maybe the best advice, but to just get out of your own way, perhaps. Check your ego, get out of your own way. What, um, when you think about, well, you know, I look at your career in terms of fundraising um, and your ability to successfully fundraise. Are there two or three things that you can share with our listeners on 
what makes or what improves your chances of success when you're fundraising? Well, definitely understanding that the process is different at different phases of the company. So, of course, at Golden Seeds, we see a lot of uh, early stage companies there. So that process, I understood extremely well and leveraged that in order to get money in the door when I first took over in 2012 when I realized we only had a month's worth of cash in the bank for a 50-person company. That's uh, pretty serious. Um, but, uh, and that, and you know, a lot of that is about networking and you and I were chatting earlier about networking and, um, and that's really effectively what the angel, uh, investment, you know, class of investing is about because that's how you meet angel investors. And, uh, they of course network with each other as well to bring each other into deals that they like. So that's important, um, capability to be able to draw upon. Um, and then when you're talking to venture, it's very different. And so when you show venture capitalists your projections, they're looking for something different than what angel investors are, which the angels are often looking for, I want to make sure that they can get to break even with my cash because otherwise they're desperate and now they're, you know, I'm getting screwed. Um, venture capitalists care about, you know, the fact that you're actually going to be burning enough cash to get the company to the next stage. And I was talking to private equity, the the growth stage equity, and the dilemma for me was trying to work out um, how much money to ask for versus what we knew we needed to burn. And I wanted to be talking to the guys that had minimum check sizes of 20 million, but we didn't need to burn that much. So knowing, you know, that actually you know, our need for cash for more like 8 million or 9 million still justified a $20 million check. Took me a while to get to because even there were some uh, investors that would have liked to have written a $20 million check, but only see us burning two or three. So I'm scratching my head saying, well, why am I raising 20 then? And until I understood that really what they want to do is put 20 million they want to buy $20 million worth of your shares. And if you think about that in the same context as the public markets, it's easier to understand where they're coming from. Because in the public market, you buy some shares. It doesn't mean you want the CEO to use up all your money. And so it's, you know, some of it's about strengthening your balance sheet, but also giving them the opportunity to to have a reasonable stake in the company. How do you pick a growth investor? How, how's it been in terms of your guidance and advice at, at the vi- different stages of what type of investor that you need? Because it sounds to me at that growth stage, it's about the money. Uh, actually, not just. And there's a very big difference between all of the firms. There are so many firms and they have their strategies that they stick to because they've raised their capital based on the strategy that they've told their limited partners they're going to deploy. So really, you've got to get to know them and understand what, what they're looking for in investment. And, you know, of course, never take it personally when they, you know, you're not their favorite company. But, um, but finding one that sees the, your market the way you see it, that agrees that now's the time to burn cash versus just conserve it, um, really has connections and contacts that could be valuable to your company, understands the metrics that drive your business, 
Um, and that's what we found in Sageview Capital. And we've learned a lot from them just in the due diligence process, um, particularly around some of the metrics and so on. And, and that's the kind of partner that I want to have because I want to keep pushing myself and my team to do more and learn more. And, and, uh, and we think that they can challenge us. Any other important differences for entrepreneurs? You sort of sit back from your CEO seat as a, you know, CEO is a growth stage company, but anything else you think about in terms of, all right, looking back at all these different phases of fundraising and having sat on both sides of the table, anything else that you think that, all right, here's some important differences that entrepreneurs should know? Well, definitely. Um being very clear what milestones you need to have achieved to make you a suitable investment candidate from their point of view. And I think with everything and particularly negotiations, you've got to be able to get out of your seat, walk around the table, sit on the other side of the table and, you know, sort of look at the people in front of you and say, you know, what are they thinking and what's driving their decision? So I think that's probably a, a good weapon to have, just to to think that through so that you can see and, and not try to make your story fit once you do understand what they're looking for, but find the one that works for your story, where the fit is just going to be like a glove, I think. Was that, so? Uh, it's like one of those things I'm sure someone listening to this would think, oh, well, that's really easy for you to say, Stephanie, because you've raised money. You know, Do sometimes, with respect to entrepreneurs, we lose sight of the fact that it's not money that we're after? Oh, I have a lot of sympathy for taking money from wherever you can get it. <laughs> so <laughs> let's not get too, uh, yeah, too uh, disciplined about it all. But I do think that even being prepared to take money from wherever you can get it, which sometimes we're forced into doing. And I understand that. Try not to have too many strings attached to that kind of money. For example, I was on the board of a company where we took money from someone who was an extremely unsuitable board board member, but made that as a requirement of the investment. And that became really problematic for the CEO and the other board members. So, you know, you've got to work out where you're going to draw the line in terms of selling your soul. Um, but yeah, you, you do. I think we all have to compromise a little bit. But I did want to also say that we decided to ra- raise the capital with an investment banker. And it definitely helped because if you're following what I'm saying, and you know, it's only one piece of advice, which is find the right investor, it does mean that you've got to have a large s- screen. And the banker did that really, you know, we had lots of relationships that we'd been cultivating over the years, so we gave them those connections, but they also came with a bunch of people that they were working with. And um, even though the process itself was, you know, six months that I lost from running the business, it would have been really intolerable, I think, if we were trying to run it, because the banker does two things. They create urgency by creating competition and they also force a process because as an entrepreneur, investors are ringing you all the time because that's their job. They hire people to call and say, want to learn more about your company. We're looking at the space. Most of that's just bullshit. They might be investigating another firm or they're just keeping up. 
but corralling any of those into a real process that's that's huge and the banker did that for us in a, you know in a way that was extremely helpful but that was this is the first time you used a banker and that's at the, the growth stage that's correct which which kind of makes sense at that Perhaps. stage not not too early yeah but i'm thinking if i could go back and do it maybe i'd even consider it because it was really so valuable at what stage I don't know, as early as possible, <laughs> just because I don't have to go through it again in any big hurry. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> That's the best advice I have for right now. What role does confidence in establishing credibility play in fundraising? Oh, I think a huge amount. Because what, a, what confidence enables you to do is be willing to expose both, you know, where you've got uh, weaknesses, no company's perfect, no individual's perfect, but be willing to expose that in a way that's not actually a weakness. And um, and so I kept saying to my team when we were under the microscope, you know, don't try to gloss over that we've got an issue in this part of the business. We're working on it. We've got a lot of good initiatives in place. We're still learning. We're, we're not shoving it under the rug. And it is what it is. You know, you don't want someone to get into get past the initial conversations and get into due diligence and then find out that you were just uh, putting a gloss over the top of you know something that wasn't working as well as you wish it was so i think that you need that you need confidence to be able to do that how did you i mean how did you become confident in fundraising cuz we've already established that was not part of what you were doing when you were on wall street and all of a sudden, you're starting an angel investment group that you're, becomes a fund, and you're fundraising for that. And it's one thing to, I'm going to say, raise a fund. It's another thing to say, hey, look at my company and invest in it. How, what were the shifts and the changes in terms of your ability to become really confident in, in pitching and, and fundraising? There's nothing like a necessity to force you to be confident. And um, I think that actually I also had to train myself to be a little more of a marketer because I tend to be quite tough on myself. And that means that I often go to all the things we're not doing. And so, um, you know, I had to get that marketing cap on, which, you know, remained authentic, I hope, but still at the same time was all about really selling how great a team we had, how much progress we'd made, what a fantastic company this is, you know, we can take this to the to the limit, etc. You know, I did have to school myself a bit in that because I err on the side of um, explaining why, you know, all the things that we aren't doing right. So, yeah, I think that entrepreneurs have to be really, really good at selling their company and uh, be willing to talk about themselves. And not all of us are comfortable with that either. But you do have to do that. And I remember hearing years ago, I don't remember who it was now, but someone saying, you just can never get tired of telling your story. And that's really clear. You have to, you know, tell it with a lot of energy every every single time. Even when you're sick of it. <laughs> Would that, I, mean, say, I was going to ask you, is that your best piece of advice for entrepreneurs? But you may have just... You can never get sick of it. Yeah. Enthusiastic every single time. And there's a distinction between that and bullshit, you know, because you can see through the bullshit. Now that you're on the other side of the table as a CEO, do you look at 
particularly put your hat back on as, uh, you know, uh, to the day when you were an angel investor, do you ever kind of think, oh, God, look what I did back then. I should be, you know, now that I'm the CEO of a startup, here's what I would advise my past self as an investor to do. Is there anything in terms of now that you're the CEO and and looking at your, your past self as an investor that you would do differently? Well, I think that it's important to be an entrepreneur-friendly investor. I think that I did try to be that. Um, but sometimes I think investors can require, you know, more than the entrepreneur can give. And so you do have to remember how they're just, you know, especially in those early years, scrambling scrambling around trying to make ends meet and not have to face the worst, which is now I've got to fire some people. And you have to be able to juggle a lot of really, really tough balls all coming at you at once. And sometimes I do wonder how people with less experience are able to get that done because, you know, I've got a lot of business experience at this point. And I was quite astonished at how I, how I had to draw on every single one of my resources and experience to to get through. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not sure that I answered your question, but uh, that I but I do think that investors have to, you know, they keep have to saying to themselves, I've got to be entrepreneur friendly because you can't give your entrepreneur one second of doubt because um, there, there's just too much to deal with all at once for them to have some kind of niggling thing about their board member bugging them. There's, you know, you don't have room for that kind of negative energy. All right, I want to get to the part of our uh, podcast that I ask the pay it forward questions, the questions I ask every guest. So this is meant to be quick answers, no pressure. All right, so first question, what are your primary sources of information? Actually, I use podcasts uh, quite a bit because I drive up and down to Boston, so podcasts are great. I actually use um, my Twitter feed to find articles for me. So I use it a lot as a source of uh, media, and I love HBR, always have Harvard Business Review. I think that is my main mentor. How do you discover new information? Twitter feed. What book are you reading? The Advantage by Patrick Lencioni. It's about how to create competitive advantage through organizational health. Do you have any rituals or habits that you swear by as CEO? Ruthless prioritization. So I've I've done lots of to-do lists over the years. I always do that first thing every morning, and I make sure I don't have any more than five things to achieve in a day. I do have a secondary list in case I get through them all early. But um, I found this great app called Todoist that might be the best one of those I've ever used. Who are three entrepreneurs or leaders you you admire? I've already mentioned Richard Branson, and that's because I love how courageous he is. Also. Joanne Corcoran, who's a board member. And what I really like about Joanne is that she's ruthlessly objective. What's the best advice you ever received? Somebody uh, that I confided in uh, gave me great advice about recruiting one time because I had said, I don't think I'm very good at hiring people because even if they're a bit odd, I always like them and I find excuses for why they're a bit odd. And of course, then I make lots of mistakes and that's not good. And this guy told me, you're only looking for two things. It's not that hard. You're looking for, is this a learning person? And is this a happy person? And I've used that ever since. Oh, it's that's great. Brilliant. 
Are they a learning person? Or are they a happy person? Because you want someone who wants to learn and you don't want someone miserable to work with. Oh, amazing. Seriously, that might be the best advice ever. Are there any particular myths that you would like to dispel for our listeners? Well, I think we touched a little bit on one, which was that generalization about women are like this and men are like that. And actually, um, I read a great book about that by Barbara Annis called The Female Brain. And um, I would really recommend that. Another one is women are not risk takers. We've touched on that as well. And um, the other one is that Aussies like to go walkabout because they don't like working. <laughs> so, yeah, I, lo- I'm, I went walkabout years ago, but I've been working the whole time. That's hilarious. Oh, and you also dispelled the myth that everyone on Wall Street raises money. Um, so we're just busting myths left, right, and center. What words of advice would you give to our listeners about taking risks and closing the confidence gap? So I really think that you have to be willing to jump at opportunities. So, and I just think, don't overthink it. Um, you can make some mistakes, but they're not that bad. Mistakes are things to learn from. And what does think broad mean to you? So I happen to know that the founder of Think Broad worked on Broad Street. <laughs> and there is already double meaning for broads on Broad Street. So uh, I can think broadly about that. <laughs> there we go. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Thank you so very much, Stephanie. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Kelly. It's fun to be here. Thank you for listening to Broad Mike. We welcome your feedback. Find us on Facebook, where you will have show notes and additional references for a deeper dive into today's topic. Subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode. Please review our podcast on iTunes, which will help other listeners discover Broad Mike and grow the Broad Mike community. Broad Mike is produced by Christy Mirabel with editing by John Marshall Media. Our executive producer is Sarah Weinheimer. Think broad.